like to open our Bibles to the book of Job in the 13th chapter. As we're doing that, let's open up in prayer. Father, we come to you today and we ask that you would be glorified in this house of worship, that as your spirit comes and ministers to our souls, that you would also be blessed and honored as we open your word. Would what gets spoken be true? Would it be full of the grace and compassion that you desire to pour out to your people today? And we thank you that we're able to come before you, boldly before your throne, because you're full of grace and mercy. So we lift up this time to you. We ask that you'd be honored in your precious and holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen. It's a black fly in your Chardonnay and a death row pardon two minutes too late. It's like rain on your wedding day. It's a free ride that you've already paid. It's good advice that you just can't take. It's a traffic jam when you're already late. A no smoking sign on your cigarette break. 10,000 spoons when all you needed is a knife meeting the man of your dreams, and then meeting his wonderful wife. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? That song took the nation by storm, 1995. I remember it well. I was a sophomore. And partially because of her improper use of the word ironic, but also because it resonated with the hearts and the souls and the minds of millions of Americans that truly believe that Murphy's Law is a thing, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. I felt like that recently. Um, it started in May, so a couple months ago, as uh, my daughter called me. She was in the basement. I was upstairs, so that's the best form of communication, right? Um, she called me, and she said, Dad, the floor in the basement in my bedroom is soaking wet, and I promise you it's not because I spilled something. So I went down, and in fact, that was the case. And we had a, a, a basement wall that we had filled, or window that we had filled in, and it leaked water, turning my drywall to mud and turning, you know, the carpet, what it does, it just is a mop. Shortly after that, uh, we went to buy that same daughter a vehicle. Uh, we drove it around. We loved it. Um, as I paid them the cash for it and backed out of the driveway, the check engine light came on. You know how that goes. That feels great. Um, not long after that, uh, I noticed a leak on the garage floor from the coolant in my Jeep. It was a water pump and serpentine belt and radiator hoses. Not long after that, a uh, couple weeks ago, the, the springs on my garage door broke. And then we went down to Oregon, and we came back. And as we pulled in the garage, I walked inside, and I noticed another coolant leak under my Jeep. <laughs> it, it happens. But how easy it is to get sucked into this frame of mind, this thought process, where if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And if we're not careful, it becomes this downward spiral of like, oh, the world is working against me. We know Jacob had that problem, right? When all of his sons went off to, to Egypt after Joseph was already there, Jacob thought he was dead, and, and they came back, and they're like, they made us leave Benjamin, and 
He's like, oh, you guys cursed me. All things work against me was what he claimed. But here, possibly in our, in, our, in our text today, we have this book of Job. And I love the Bible because we get to read it and we didn't have to live it. But Job, he had the, the pleasure of living it. And, and what do we know happened to Job? If it could go wrong, it truly did go wrong for him. We know in chapter 1, in the course of a day, actually in the process of a few hours, he lost his cattle, his sheep, his camels, all of his livestock, his crops, then his servants, and then his children, seven sons, three daughters. A little bit of time passes in between chapter 1 and chapter 2, and he uh, gives his, the, the poor health, he's cursed in his health with, with boils from head to toe. And as you read through Job, you'll, you'll learn of the, the oozing, open sores, pus, You'll learn of the stench. You'll learn of the failing eyesight as a cause. The teeth that are falling out of his mouth. He is in a hard place. But lucky for Job, he's got three friends, too. Good, good for Job. He's got three friends. A fourth one comes along later. And they hear of his, his poor health and all of his trials and tribulations. And they come and they mourn with him. They do what's in the Jewish culture called they sit shiva. It means that they just sit for seven days. You're not allowed to speak a word. And I think we could probably learn a thing or two from that in our culture. But they, they sit, and they sit Shiva for seven days, and it's probably the best time for Job. The problem is those seven days run out, and the friends begin to open their mouths. And what happens? They don't speak words of comfort. They're not words of empathy, encouragement. They're words of condemnation, accusation. So they believed that if if you were a good man, a good God-fearing individual, you would be blessed. And because Job is going through the opposite of that, he is hiding some secret sin, unconfessed and unrepented of. And so the next 30-plus chapters, as you work your way through Job, if you have not read it, you should. It's, it's a fantastic um, piece about the faith of a man in trial. But the next 30-plus chapters are full of, of the prosecution of Job by his friends and the defense of Job via Job because he had no one to fight his case. But in the midst of this, Job... It says, he did not curse God. Now, if you can for a moment, just imagine all of the actual trials that Job went through and thinking that you maintained your integrity towards the Lord. Job did so. And so in that, I want to just focus on three great proclamations of the faith of Job in this time. Three great statements that he said. Now, Job didn't get it all right. He actually said quite a few like weird things that he got corrected about in the end by God. But in maintaining his faith, he made these proclamations that we need to learn from in the church. 
Now, Job didn't have the ability to look back into Scripture and establish some doctrine, what it means like to have faith in God as you go through hard times. He didn't read Job chapter 1 where God actually says, Job is the most righteous person on the face of the earth. He didn't get to see behind the proverbial curtain where Satan challenges Job's faith by saying he's virtually a, a faith mercenary following the Lord only because of the blessings he's been given. He didn't get to read the Pentateuch. He didn't have the Law and the Prophets. He didn't have the wonderful, heartfelt Psalms. He just had a faith in the Almighty. So as we dive into these three statements, I want you to think about a couple of key, um, maybe doctrinal stances that these statements also carry with them in Job's way of, of not understanding yet understanding. The first one's found in Job chapter 13. We'll pick up in verse 13 as it says this. Hold your peace, as he says to his friends. Hold your peace, or, or shut up for a second. Let me, let me alone that I may speak and let come on me what will. Wherefore do I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Why do I take my flesh in my teeth? It's an old proverb where they would say, like, picture like a lioness carrying her cub for protection by the scruff of his neck, or, or a tiger with a fresh prey protecting it from other. Why do I take my, my own flesh in my my teeth. Why, why am I trying to hold on to my life? Truly, Job knew one thing. He knew it's futile for a man to think that he can control his own life. Why do I take my life in my own hand? God, in fact, has absolute control. But yet the crux of the statement comes in the next verse where he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, the providence of God is something that I can hold on to. We say it in a few other words, like omnipotence or sovereignty, right? Omnipotence just meaning um, all-powerful, or sovereignty meaning, meaning final or absolute authority, right? Those are Christian doctrines, and Job had some kind of an understanding of that evidently when he says, like, I can't take my own life into my own hand. I don't have control over it, and I can say, that's great, I, I'll submit myself to the, to the sovereignty of God. But can I say it, though he slay me? Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. And so we need to know one thing, God is absolutely sovereign. God has every right to slay you if he sees fit. Romans says this, can the creation say to the creator, why have you created me thus? He's not only our creator, though, but he's also our purchaser. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. And he is your creator, he is your former, he is the one that gives you life. We sing that every breath comes from you, and yet we want to say, but give me my life back. 
God has every right to do as he sees fit. But the flip side of that is, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The other side of that is we have a good God that is, in fact, trustworthy. Now, I can go to work tomorrow. I have a boss, and when I go to work, my time belongs to him. So if I show up tomorrow morning, he can say to me, uh, you need to clean out, you need to go into this septic tank, and you need to shovel its contents into this pail. And I can say to him, why? Why, why do I need to do that? And he can say, because I like walking, watching you walk around in the filth, right? You may, I, I sold my time, my energy, my emotion to him, and he has every right to do that. Now, I may in this life have a cruel boss that gives me cruel tasks for no reason, but that's not what Job has as a view of God. When I was a kid, my brother and I loved this movie called Clash of the Titans. It's basically, it revolves around like the, the Greek mythology of what the gods were like back then. And so the gods are super like, they're very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a word. They're like easily offended. They're very touchy and they are arrogant and they quarrel among themselves and they fight. And the Greek, that's where Greek mythologists got it wrong. They made man in their own, or God in their own image instead of man and gods. But that's the way they saw God. And so in this, like you've got this, this character who's the star of the movie and he goes around trying to set things right while the gods are like starting these wars and these little battles. And and the view is from up above, these gods have like this little chessboard, and the, and the hero, hero is trying to move or maneuver his way through there, and they're putting obstacles in his path. Like, how's he going to do with this one? Uh, and then you've got Zeus, who actually is his dad, right, half-dad. And he's like, no, let's help him here. He's, he, I'm going to give him a little assist and, and do that. And that's the way they saw God, but not Job. We have a God that is a good God. John tells us that God is love. Now, love is not God, but God is love. And somehow Job knew that. And though he didn't have the ability to read what like Moses wrote in Exodus 34, where he said, The Lord God, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Though Job didn't have the ability to read that, he knew it. And because of that, he could proclaim, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He also shall be my salvation. And so he knew in God's providence, in God's, God's sovereignty, in God's omnipotence, that, that though he slay him, he will ultimately be his salvation. God is good, and I can trust in him. He also knew a second thing in Job chapter 14. So if you turn one page over, 
Job chapter 14, he knew man's perpetuity. In the 14th verse, he says, If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time, I will wait till my change comes. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou will have a desire to the work of thine hands, for now thou numberest my steps, and thou dost not watch over my sin. If a man die, shall he live again? Earlier, he, he compares it to the life of like a tree or vegetation, where he says you take a tree and you cut it off at the stump. Though it be cut down, though it wither away, though, though it dry up and die, the dew from heaven can bring it to life again. But not so with man. Not so. Hebrews chapter 9, it says, It's appointed for once a man to die and after the judgment. Psalm in the 90th chapter says, The years of a man are threescore and ten, or seventy, and if by strength, eighty. The years of a man are seventy or eighty if he's strong. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. For believers, this is great, because we know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. With the unbeliever, it's, it's, it's not so great. To be absent from the body is to be in the presence of judgment. But Job knew that if a man dies, he doesn't get to live again like he lived in this life. Though the sinner may find satisfaction in sin from a, for a season, there will be no satisfaction to be had on that side of eternity. Though he might find comfort and belonging with the heathen of this world for a time, he will be in isolation and loneliness and darkness for eternity. Jesus tells us of two men in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus. You guys know the story. The rich man had everything he needed, clothed himself in pompous apparel, lived in a mansion. It says that he ate more than his fill. And Lazarus was a beggar who sat in his gates. And he just wanted, if he could, anything that would be spared, any crumbs to be spared from the rich man's table, but he got none. His health was poor. He was filled with boils. He lacked the strength to fight the dogs off from licking his wounds. And Lazarus died. And eventually the rich man died and was buried. Lazarus died and went to Abraham's bosom, also known paradise. The rich man died and went to Hades, the place of torment. And the rich man, looking across, he sees Abraham and Lazarus there, and he says, Hey, Abe, if you could just have Lazarus dip his hand in some water and and let a drop fall to my tongue because I'm tormented in these flames. 
And Abraham said, nah, you know how in that life you received comfort and Lazarus received his evil. Now he's comforted and you are not. And he said, besides, there's, there's a chasm between you and I to where even if one wanted to come over to us or us to you, we could not. And he said, well, then, then send Lazarus back to my father's house. I've got five brothers there. Like, send them back to my brothers that, that they'll repent. And, and Moses said, give them. They've got Moses and the prophets. And he said, nah, but if, if Lazarus goes, they're going to believe, right? They're going to see a guy from the dead. And he said, ah. If they don't receive Moses and the prophets, they're not even going to believe one that's dead. That's a sidebar on that. We should, we should know that miracles don't produce faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But after the judgment, after the appointed time passes, judgment comes. And he said, there will be an eternity. There will be an eternity for man. This is what it looks like for the believer. I'm going to read quite a bit of scripture here, so, so bear with me on that. But 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about this resurrection. Um, and actually says that the resurrection is the greatest validation and proclamation of the gospel that there can be. But in the 35th chapter, or 35th verse of the chapter, 36, he says, But some say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? I think those are both great questions. <laughs> if there's a resurrection, how are the dead raised up? And with what, what do they look like? Paul says, you fool. I think that's funny too, because... I am. But, though thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not the body that shall be, but some kind of bare grain or type of wheat or other grain. But God gives it a body as it has pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of birds, another of fishes, there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial body is one and the glory of the terrestrial body is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. As so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not the first which is spiritual, but, the, but which is natural and afterwards that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthly. The second man is of the Lord from heaven. As, it is, as is the earthly, such are they also that are earthly. And as is heavenly, such are also they that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must, be, must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you can see the words of Job echoed through there, I will wait for my appointed time, and when you call, I will answer, and I will be changed. Man was created to live forever with his Lord God. And in fact, if you have a faith in Jesus Christ, you will. In the twinkling of an eye, in but a moment, your tears will turn to joy. And you're weeping to laughter. Because we will be face to face with the Lord. Not so with the unbeliever. Jesus said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did prophesy in your name, and we cast out demons in your name, and we did mighty works in your name. And then I will dare declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We all will see we all will live again. Which brings me to my third proclamation of Job's faith. 19th chapter, you all probably know it well and have sung it on numerous occasions. Job chapter 19, verse 23, we'll pick up. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Oh, that they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. I think um, if we took seriously Jesus' words in Matthew 12 that says we'll give account for every idle word, we'd probably take much more heed to the way we speak. But here Job, in his integrity, says... Write down every word. Oh man, I wish it were so. He didn't know that God was going to grant him that petition. <laughs> but he did. He said, oh, if my words were written down, this is what I would say. And he says, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth and though my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh will I see God, whom I, have, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. 
I wish my words were written down because this is what I would say. He recognized his soul's protection. He knew the providence of, of God and the perpetuity of man, um, but he also knew the, the protection for the soul was found in the Lord. This I know, my Redeemer lives. That word Redeemer means is go well in the Hebrew. It means kinsman, close of kin, near kin that can purchase you back. Who is closer than a brother? Jesus. Who will never leave you or forsake you? Jesus. Hebrews 6.19, which we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, which endures into that which is within the veil. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have this hope this sure foundation, this anchor for the soul that, that holds us there, that we know that we will have peace and rest in the presence of God. This is not an ethereal thing. This is not something that's out there that can't be grasped, but it's something that's tangible, he says. I know that though this flesh it passes away, though the worms devour it, somehow in my flesh I will still see God and I will stand with him in that last day. Why is this important? Why did we need to take the last half an hour-ish to look at a few statements by Job? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And so as we look at the faith of Job, the man who's been put through the most pressure probably, as anyone recorded, yet maintained his integrity towards God. He cursed God not. We have the ability to look at him and say, that's the faith I want to carry. We have truly seen that kind of faith put into practice in this body in, in recent time. And true, without that kind of faith, we cannot see God. We know that he is God. He is almighty. He is all-powerful, ever-present, all-knowing. We know that he is good, that he is a rewarder of those that seek him, that he loves to good give, give good gifts to his children. But I heard this, this saying recently. It's good to have faith 
to be healed. It's better to have faith to be sick. And that's the problem with the the word of faith movement, the health and wealth, the name it and proclaim it, is because it's a shallow faith. Yes, we pray for healing. The Bible calls us to that. He says, believe that God is good. Paul also said, I, I, I prayed for deliverance three times. And the Lord answered, my, faith, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, I am made strong. And so I ask you, do you have this faith? As Nick and Nate come back up here, and the the tables are opened during this first song, and as you take the bread and you dip it into the cup, I want you to, to, to... to evaluate where does my faith lie? Can I say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him? Am I awaiting for that appointed time where he calls me and I answer and I am changed? Can I proclaim with the rest of the saints and with the angelic beings above, I know that my Redeemer lives. And if you have never called on the grace of Jesus, this is an opportune time. Say, Jesus, I haven't trusted in you. I've I've wanted to take my life into my own hands. I thought that when I show up before you, I can tell you all of the good stuff that I did. The Bible says, no, that's not the way the economy of the kingdom works. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All your good works are like filthy rags before him. And so as you grab the communion elements, evaluate the state of your faith. And if you have to make some changes, let's make some changes before we take communion as a a family in between songs. Jesus, we, we thank you that we got an opportunity to come before you. As the veil was torn from heaven to earth, we have the chance to come before your throne with boldness, knowing that your grace has paid the way by your blood. And so, Jesus, hear our prayers as we cry out to you. Minister to our souls as we dwell on you. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. As we grab the elements, you may say to me,
how do I know that I can trust God? And the answer is in your hands. For by the will of God, he who knew no sin, absolutely pure, perfect, 100% pure, without sin, without blemish, he who knew no sin became sin that we might be the righteousness of God in him. God did not cease to sacrifice his own son in your place. You can trust him because of the body and the blood of Jesus. And as we take these elements, we remember that the body was broken. It pleased the Father to smite the Son for you. By his wounds, we are healed. Though our sins were red as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And so, Father, we take this in remembrance of your Son right now, Jesus. We remember the death, the price that he paid. And we also remember that he was raised again from the dead in glorious victory over sin for us. And so we can look forward to your coming again. We can stand boldly knowing that my Redeemer lives because the sacrifice was made and it was accepted. By the body and the blood, we know that we will stand in your presence. By the body and the blood, we know that we are healed. By the body and the blood, we know that we are forgiven. And by the body and the blood, we know that we can trust you. take the elements and let's stand and proclaim how great our God is let's worship the Savior of the universe